0: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Barnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now, to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Nathan Lutz from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Nathan, how are you doing,
1: sir? I am doing great on a day which looks like a postcard outdoors. The snow has fallen on the trees. There's not enough wind to blow off the branches. So it is a fantastic fairyland out there at the moment. I know you recorded Fargo recently. I'm starting to feel
0: like we live in it. It's nice. I, I, I'm i not used to keeping snow around for multiple weeks here in Pittsburgh. Normally it melts off between snow, so I'm digging this. But uh, I, I, I like this winter. But I am excited today, Nathan. You know Why?
2: Why is that, Russell?
0: We have a first-time guest on today, Mr. Noah Diamond from the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Noah, welcome to the show. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having me on, guys.
0: Now, Noah, tell us about the Marx Brothers Council podcast in particular, relevant to what we're doing today, as well as some of your other efforts that you can find at NoahDiamond.com.
2: Well, thanks. The Marx Brothers Council podcast, which is now in its fifth year, is a monthly podcast that I host with Matthew Conium who is the author of The Annotated Marx Brothers, among other great books, and Bob Gasell, who's our producer and editor. And every month we spend anywhere from one to three hours uh, digging deep into some aspect of the Marx Brothers' lives and times. Um, at the time we're recording this now, we just released our deep dive into You Bet Your Life, the quiz show that Groucho hosted in the 1950s. Uh I've written a book about the Marx Brothers, which is called Gimme a Thrill. It's a history of their first Broadway musical, I'll say she is, and my own efforts to revive it. And uh yeah, as you mentioned, at my website, there's uh, a whole litany of projects, um, many Marxian and some not.
0: Okay, so it's noahdiamond.com. No relation to Neil Diamond, I assume.
2: No, although we do have the same last name.
0: And let's get to know you guys a little bit better here. Uh Noah, outside of the Marx Brothers... What comedy actors do you feel like have the best chemistry, just for you? That's an interesting question.
2: You know, when it comes to comedy teams, we always take chemistry for granted. And it seems almost um, redundant to say, oh, you know, Laurel and Hardy have great chemistry. Um, Of course, a great comedy team would have to. And in the case of the Marx Brothers, since they're also siblings, um, there's even a sort of deeper chemistry. But when it comes to people who are chiefly actors one of the one of the obvious answers is walter Matthau and jack lemon who were a comedy oh, yeah. team even though that wasn't quite the way their career was shaped uh, whenever they were together it was automatically funny also although they never made a film together as performers um mike nichols and elaine may it's hard to think of any two people in history who have ever been the director mike nichols yeah huh the director mike nichols before his directing career. He and Elaine May were a comedy team in nightclubs during the Lenny Bruce era. Uh, and they were largely an improvisational team uh, who developed material by making it up as they went and then solidifying it into, into uh, a sort of library of material. Nichols and May, they recorded a few albums together together. Um, and I think those records might be the best example I can think of of comic chemistry.
0: Wow, that's that's very good there, uh, Nathan. What about you? Uh, is, is there a what other great comedian chemistries can you think of?
1: Hey, when I watch a movie like what we're reviewing today, what I am drawn straight back to is my days of childhood watching of the Three Stooges. It's not exactly the same kind of humor here, but I am just totally reminded of Larry, Curly, and Moe, and Tickle's a lot of wonderful itches wow
0: that's another really good answer i like the guys from monty python an awful lot and over the years there have been some wonderful saturday night live herrings that have come and gone in different shapes and combinations but i will always have a soft spot in my heart for chris farley and david spade so noah just what is the last movie you saw? It doesn't have to be in theaters. Could it be anything?
2: Yeah, the last movie I watched, I wasn't seeing it for the first time, but the last movie I, I sat through from beginning to end was uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, the recent uh, uh, directorial debut of Lin-Manuel Miranda based on Jonathan Larson's musical. Oh, did you enjoy that? Yeah, I love it. It's a, it's a movie. It's one of those movies that it's hard for me to know how objective my opinion is. Uh, because the material and the subject matter are so close to my heart. Um, but yeah, to me, and, um, I, I do think it's an excellent film, but I'd be, be interested to hear opinions from somebody who, um, wasn't so steeped in the world of New York and musical theater and who didn't come up in the same era as Jonathan Larson. And it's almost too personal for me to know, to trust my opinion. But yes, I love it and it makes me, uh, weep and weep.
0: Hey. Sometimes when it's made for you, you don't have to be ashamed. Just go with it and say, you know what? I was the target audience, and I loved
2: it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you. That's that's right. I was the target audience, and I lapped it up like a kitten. Right.
0: So, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nathan, what about you? What's the last movie that you saw?
1: <laughs> you know, on a much less serious film note, I finally got around to watching The Eternals, which I had been kind of putting off for a while. And, uh... That's a long pause. Zeitgeist yeah. opinion of this movie is pretty accurate. This is a, uh, a, a long movie that at the end of it, you turn around and say, did I need all of that? <laughs> Marvel's not asking if you need it or not. They just want your money. They do want your money. And, uh, and they got it. This one's staying on Disney Plus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last one I saw was Django Unchained. Throughout the year, I always pick up these movies from 10 years ago that I might not have seen so that we can rank our top 10 movies from 10 years ago later in the year and i never saw django and chain i'm not really a quentin tarantino fan but because it was nominated for best picture i went ahead and picked it up got to it it's a long movie as all tarantino movies are and um ah you know tarantino's i'm not his target audience and i did not uh, connect with this one as much but i certainly see that it had a lot of merits going for it but it's just funny i find it strange that it got nominated for best picture that that struck me as that's the thing that strikes me as like really so but um on to lighter subject matter than. Than these movies. Let's get into today's movie, which is what, Nathan? Today we are reviewing Monkey Business. That's right. Monkey Business comes out in 1931. I don't have any box office data for you, as I normally would in this point. Noah, I actually want to ask you, there's no reasonable place to get box office returns for movies this old, is there?
2: Oh you know I think there is although I'm not um I'm not a great uh, source for it but you know some of some people um I know including my fellow hosts of the uh, Marx Brothers Council podcast I I know they are always giving box office information it's a little outside my the the part of the um the story of these movies that interests me but I think it's available um maybe old Uh, archived copies of Variety, stuff like that. Um, I know that it was a financial success, Monkey Business, um, and there was some question about whether it would work because uh, it was the Marx Brothers' third film, but it was their first original film. Uh, The first two had been adapted from shows that they had done on Broadway. And those first two films, uh, Coconuts and Animal Crackers, were also made in New York um, at the Astoria studio while they were more or less still in their Broadway period. Um, so Monkey Business was an experiment, you know, it was the first time they went to Hollywood and made a movie that they built from the ground up as a film. Um, and I think they themselves were, you know, in great doubt about whether this experiment was That's an work.
0: interesting place to start with this, because, uh, like I said, Box Office Mojo drops off in the 70s. And and if you gross enough, the numbers.com has you. But if you're not high enough grossing in that year then then it just falls into the gray zone for the internet. So um the, I can tell you the number 1 movie from 1931 was Frankenstein, which is a great movie. And the critics mm-hmm. of Rotten Tomatoes do love uh Monkey Business. They give it an 89%. The audience score gives it an 84%. And perhaps one of its most distinguished, you know, accolades here is that it, it made the AFI 100 Years of Laughs. It was number 73 on that list and they made that list back in 2000. So Noah, given your strong understanding of the subject matter, I, I know that you must have seen this movie, but what was your first time seeing it, and what was it like coming back to it today?
2: Well, I think the first time I saw Monkey Business, I must have been 12 years old, because I was 12 when I first started to make my way through all the Marx Brothers films, uh, although I, I was aware of them earlier than that, but it was around the age of 12 that I first started to track down the films, and I am just old enough to have had a childhood wherein it was pretty hard to find old movies. You know I was 12 years old in 1989 so it was you know trips to the video store and the library which usually had you know not the richest collection of older movies. Um Or you just scan the television list, hope that uh, some of these movies would be on television. So, you know, a 12-year-old kid who gets into the Marx Brothers now can very easily see all their movies, you know, without getting up from the couch. Uh, but it was a real treasure hunt in those days. You had to find them. I think Monkey Business, I think I did find it fairly early. I think we rented it from a video store. And it was probably maybe the fourth or fifth Marx Brothers movie I saw. And I know that I loved it. It's one of the good ones. I mean, not to not to get into too deep a history, but with the Marx Brothers, there are 13 Marx Brothers films. And basically the first six are timeless classics of comedy. And then in the second half of their film career, it all starts to fall apart. And you come to understand this when you get to know their films, you know, in more detail. But even then, it was clear to me, like, oh, half of these are really great, and the other half are, are a little disappointing. So I identified Monkey Business as, you know, this is one of the good ones. Yeah,
0: yeah. And do you feel like this is holding up as far as material, like, for today's audience? Because we're getting, you know, we're not quite to the 100-year mark yet, but a lot of time has gone by. This is on the older end of the types of movies that we would cover here on this show. Do you feel like this is a movie that still holds up today and demands to be watched still?
2: Yes, I think so. It it is another example where my own objectivity could be questioned because I'm so immersed in the Marx Brothers. But I do think so. I think this is one that tends to score very highly with audiences. I've had the great experience of seeing it in a theater now and then, and it always does have that effect of, you know, contagious rolls of laughter after most of the jokes. I also think one of the reasons that it was selected discuss on this show is because I I think it's a particularly good introduction to the Marx Brothers. It's not quite my favorite of their films, uh, nor do I think it's quite their best, but it's a very good way in, Uh, specifically because it was created as a film. It has a lot more kinetic dynamism than Coconuts and Animal Crackers do. There's a real sense of running all over this ocean liner. As you undoubtedly noticed, the plot is absolutely negligible. (laughs) It's just one gag after another, but they accumulate with, with great momentum. And I think it has a little more in common with, with contemporary comedies than, than most of their other films do.
0: That's a very good way of putting it. And this, th- that is true. We, uh, full disclosure, we were going to do the coconuts with your co-host from the Marsh Brothers uh, yes. Council. And, uh, it was going to be, um, Matthew who came on to do the show. It was going to be the coconuts. And I had not seen the coconuts before I watched it and, and I was like, this is different than the other Marx Brothers movies I've seen. And then I knew Nathan, I'm going to spoil this. You hadn't seen any of Marx Brothers yet. And I was like, I don't think I want you to go into the coconuts as your first Marx Brothers movie. And then, um, our, 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 our guests ended up subbing out for each other and we got Noah on the show, which is turning out really great so far. And then I, I, I did ask him, I was like, uh, Nathan's not seen one of these before. Do we want to do this to him with coconuts? And I think you, uh, rightfully <laughs> said, maybe not. So at this point, I'm going to turn to you, Nathan. I, I, I've i spilled the beans. This was your first Marx Brothers movie. What's it like coming into it for you?
1: Yeah, so as I alluded to earlier, my touchstone for this era of comedy, this kind of comedy, is really The Three Stooges. And while I've seen a little bit of sort of Charlie Chaplin to be sort of the extremely early end of this, and then really grew up with a whole lot of watching the movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which is in a kind of way almost like uh, the epitome of slapstick madhouse comedy on a grand scale. These are the movies that I'm comparing this to in a lot of ways, where it has a plot more than, say, a Three Stooges kind of movie. and There are connecting threads that run through the whole movie and jokes that build on one another, but for the most part, they try to steer clear of anything that really does require them to have running jokes that they have to support through so it becomes very variety showish in a way where all of a sudden now we get to do the party musical hour and we can do these kinds of jokes and before that we get the cruise liner jokes of the sort of hijinks there and there's a thin thread of story that runs through that and gives you just enough to latch onto. And once you're in the mindset of, yeah, these jokes are just going to keep coming, they're going to have more and more kind of random disconnected scenes and characters other than the four main characters will move in and out and you're just in it for the ride. So... This is a an interesting experience is sort of a middle ground of some of these things.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like uh this is an important piece of your film career or uh comedy history that you get to add to your puzzle to like make the picture of like appreciation for it a lot more full
1: then. Yeah. And it is interesting with what we had gone through before with the coconuts and some other sort of background of this movie, and especially for me, coming from sort of a, uh, I always look at the music as such an important part of these movies that reading about it, I'm glad that we did this because it is more musical, and just seeing that the Marx brothers were trying to get more music into these movies and trying, you know, really capitalize on their Broadway origins that made that important for them. And it's, very interesting to see just how they managed to filter that in towards the end and sort of the jokes that they made around that as a way of making that work for them
2: yeah it's very astute nathan it's it's true that they are they are an overwhelmingly musical comedy team and um in fact they're in their Early vaudeville career, they began as musicians. Um, yeah. who they sort of went from being a, a musical act with comedy to being a comedy act with music. And you're absolutely right about the what you call the variety showish nature of of this and most of their best work. And in in their stage career, both in vaudeville and on broad, that's really what it was. Those shows also had you know some kind of uh, perfunctory nod in the direction of having a narrative, <laughs> a plot line. But really, it was an excuse to do specialty material. And Monkey Business stands apart from their other early films. In fact, in that it doesn't have any big musical numbers in it. Uh, Groucho doesn't sing a song in Monkey Business, Mm. as he does in most of the other um, early and some of the late Marx Brothers films. And yet, even in a movie that doesn't have any songs, they're constantly doing musical things. There's the Harpo and Chico get to do their harp and piano specialties, as they do in most of the films. But there's also so many wonderful little moments, as you suggest, like when the brothers are being pursued across the deck of the ocean liner, and they just spontaneously grab in Instruments And become a saxophone trio uh, with Chico on piano for a few moments. Um, or in the, I guess, what in a normal movie would be the climactic scene when they decide that the way to get off this boat is by impersonating Maurice Chevalier. So they each get to do their Chevalier impression. Or Groucho grabbing the guitar to punctuate some of Thelma Todd's expressed desires in in the scene in her stateroom. Any excuse to start bursting into song or instrumental music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun on a rewatch just to see, and we'll probably get into some of this later, where the harp song that Harpo plays at the end is something that Chico has written. Actual Chico has written this thing. And in an earlier scene when they're over the chessboard, he whistles... Mm-hmm. part of that song and then later on you hear it again and he says oh can you play this one on harp and it is very it, it it's really fun it rewards a rewatch.
2: yeah that that running gag even pops up in their next film in horse feathers you you hear that music again it's a song called i'm daffy over you that chico had written uh during their vaudeville era
0: rounding this out I, this was this was my first time with Monkey Business, which I was excited to pick up another Marsh Brothers movie I had not seen, I was introduced to them at a similar age as you know, uh, maybe about 10 I want to say is when I started getting introduced to the Marsh Brothers. Michael Charles liked them a lot and referenced them and my dad was also a fan of, I'm uh, just definitely a good library of all things comedy. And he introduced me to them. And, uh, I know when the AFI list came out as well, I, I saw some of those as well. I didn't pick up all of them. I didn't carry through with them. As you mentioned, Noah, they weren't always that attainable at blockbuster videos. So you got what you could. I didn't keep seeking them out with the same fervor that you had. Honestly, they're still not all that easy to get a hold of. When I when we almost did the coconuts, I actually had a very hard time finding it. I, I went ahead and committed to the five pack of their Paramount movies, which I consider a good investment because it's cleaned everything up. The Blu-rays look really nice everything the sound quality is as good as it's probably going to be from something of that era and it's nice to have the quality bumped up from that but it's not like you can just go to prime or netflix at this point in time when we recorded this and just pick them up at this point so they're still not that easy to get a hold of did you were you able to get a hold of it nathan like obviously you did but like how how did you get it
1: i ended up following your advice and grabbing that youtube link yeah but it was perfectly serviceable
2: yeah it's complete they tend to come and go from streaming services. I'm not sure exactly which, um, you know, rights situation is responsible for that. But, but yes, it's true. For a while, they were all, st- or many of the paramounts, um, were streaming on Peacock. Um, and then they vanish from there. I think a couple of the MGM Marx Brothers films are on Amazon Prime, but, uh, yeah, that's true. They, they come and go. I, completely uh, endorse your endorsement of the blu-ray set though anyone who has any interest in the brothers the blu-rays are beautiful you're right the restorations are terrific they look much clearer and sharper than they have in a long time, and Animal Crackers, which is the Marx Brothers film that precedes Monkey Business, and in, and and my favorite of their films, even has a couple of minutes of restored footage that had been lost.
0: Yeah, I I was hoping for more. I won't say documentary style type things, but I, I was hoping with the Blu-ray pack that there might be some more info uh, info on it. But if you don't if you don't yeah. get your fill of that from those Blu-rays, I know of a good podcast where one
2: hear all about those things and more. That's true. You could listen to the Marx Brothers Council podcast, where we are uh, amazingly still finding things to say about them. There also is, for anyone who's looking to get into them, there's an excellent documentary called The Marx Brothers in a Nutshell that was produced by Robert Whitey and Joe Adamson. And that is a great sort of primer. And there's also a couple of documentaries that I have made that you can find on my YouTube channel that focus in on aspects of their career just last year i produced one for the fredonia marxonia festival it's called there's nothing like liberty the marx brothers in america and it explores their relationship with their country
0: yeah so this this one was this I, i'm gonna say right now this one was a hit for me and this i'm with you know this one feels different and i'm interested now i'm starting to accumulate enough marx brothers movies where i i am detecting the differences in studios and eras and whatnot because they dropped from a four-man group to a three-man group later and it is interesting to see the evolution of them. I'm, I'm curious to go back and actually maybe someday I'll sit there and watch them chronolog, uh, in chronological order. Cause I've certainly not watched them in chronological order. I, I'd say, um, duck soup was probably my favorite, not to sell out and go with the, you know, one that AFI says is the best. But I, at the moment, thinking this one has now become my second favorite. So I, are those, those are probably really common just going along with the afi things but th- those are my opinions on this one at this point in time but i mean i've only seen horse feathers a day at the races coconuts this and duck soup i think now so i'm only i'm only about halfway through they're 13 if you will so
2: well it's great that you i mean i i envy that having so many still ahead you know to be able to see a new marx brothers movie would be quite a thrill i think as far as the afi list and and similar rankings go The two Marx Brothers movies that are most often hailed as a masterpiece are Duck Soup and A Night at the Opera, which is their first movie for MGM, first one after Zeppo left the act. And for a good chunk of the 20th century, A Night at the Opera was generally thought to be their best work, and since then... The pendulum has swung toward Duck Soup.
0: Duck Soup is just so brave. <laughs> like, they, they just, they they made fun of everything that you didn't think that you could make fun of, and a very piercing satire.
2: Yeah, because of the subject matter, Duck Soup is sort of vaguely about war and politics. And so it does feel like it has some greater satirical weight than some of their other films. And it is, it is unquestionably a, a great Marx Brothers movie and full of great stuff. Although I sense that now, just as the pendulum uh, swung from Night at the Opera to Duck Soup around the Vietnam era, I think these days Duck Soup has maybe lost a little bit of its status and Animal Crackers is becoming maybe just as common an answer when, uh, when people ask, what's your favorite Marx Brothers movie? Um, but I think through A Night at the Opera, you know, their, their first six films, the five Paramounts and the first MGM, you know, it's just different degrees of absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Now, there are going to be spoilers from here on out. And I'm doing this a little bit later than usual, as Noah pointed out. The plot on this is not as intensive, but if you're spoiler adverse, this is going to be your final morning. We're going to come back after this and Nathan's going to spoil the intricate plot of this movie. <laughs>
1: Like you.
2: What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get
1: the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're
0: back. And this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Nathan, for those who haven't seen Monkey Business since 1931, do you want to refresh
1: people's memory? Absolutely, Russell, I do. The pontificating Groucho, the musical Harpo, the mischievous Chico, and the songful Zeppo have stowed away aboard a ship bound for the U.S. But when they can't resist singing Sweet Adeline, not even their brilliant barrel disguise can escape the ham-fisted scrutiny of the crew. The ensuing hijinks inconvenience sun loungers and chess players, captains and puppet shows. By the time the ship pulls into dock, Chico and Harpo have blundered into being bodyguards for the gangster Big Joe, while Grafcho and Zeppo temporarily end up working for Joe's vengeful rival, Aukie Briggs, all the while romancing Briggs' wife, Lucille. After each of them tries and fails to impersonate an actor whose passport they've stolen, the four reconvene to hide among the cargo, again, to make it past U.S. customs. But they follow Big Joe to a party where more hijinks ensue. After sneaking in, Groucho encounters Lucille, Zeppo reps Harpo to get him to give a stunning harp performance after suffering a soprano's singing, and Chico plays piano with the actual party band. With all their distractions, Big Joe's daughter Mary gets kidnapped by Briggs, and it falls to Groucho and Zeppo to rescue her. In the barn where the gangsters are holding her, Groucho commentates, Chico fights, and Harpo looks for a needle in a haystack. All right. And it does go down in a big fight sequence at the
0: end, which, uh, it seems like an action moment all of a sudden to inject the more, more to the variety hour that you were speaking of before. So it's a, it's a remarkably short movie by today's standards, but, uh, they, it is densely packed. Noah, this is, this is a fast paced movie. Like you don't wait long between laughs, do you?
2: No, I think that's part of what, uh, what holds up so well about it. Um, yeah, it moves very quickly and, I think specifically because, as you point out, the plot is so unimportant. You don't have the usual, you don't have the usual dramatic things keeping your attention. You're not watching this movie to find out what happens to the character, nor are you watching it because you particularly care about the characters. You know, there's no appeal to the audience's sympathy, a- as there is with Chaplin. You know, it's just joke by joke. And if—and that that is a very daring way to work, because when you don't have narrative or emotion pulling you through, then everything that happens in the movie kind of has to top the thing that happened before it. Otherwise your attention will wander. And The best of the Marx Brothers movies are very successful at that. They start off funny, and each scene, it builds and builds and builds. And you're watching to find out what they do next, rather than what happens. And as you probably noticed, by the time the movie ends, even though you're right about its short running time, it it kind of runs out of steam, as these movies tend to. Because when there is no real story to resolve, and there is no real question to answer, and there's no character development or any of that normal, conventional stuff... These movies just kind of have to stop, you know. They they don't really end; they stop. And that needle in a haystack gag is just, you know, could be any gag in the picture. It's a quick fade to black after. Up, oh, we're out of jokes now, so the movie's over. Yeah,
0: that's a good way of putting it. It it, it is abrupt. Nathan, uh, I was texting with Chad, uh, one of our other hosts who aren't on this week. He was saying that this might be too dense for me. That needs to breathe. Uh, these jokes might be coming at me too fast. How was this, this for you? Again, this is your introduction to these four and their chemistry. Did you like how densely packed and how fast-paced all of this was?
1: It definitely varied by the part of the movie that we were in. And there were a bunch of scenes which were set up like, this is a location that we're going to be in for next couple of minutes, and we're just going to make jokes here. And I felt that those scenes really worked very well. Uh, where it was a little bit much for me was when they were trying to change locations very quickly and the jokes, instead of feeding off of one another within the same scene, started to try to spiral out a little bit. Uh, so some of the extra chasing around the cruise ship that... Tried to touch on one too many things was a little bit much, and when they go to the part at the end, those jokes also ended up becoming sort of more complicated and less cogent as a way of, okay, now we're trying to make this one big scene add up to something funny, instead of focusing on what they seem to be really good at, which is the wordplay humor, the... Situational, extremely focused humor where someone's doing something ridiculous and we're going to explore every piece of that. When they're exploring that kind of thing and they're telling a joke every 10 seconds that just builds on the scene even more, that really worked for me.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you're not a big fan of the moving around portions too much. I, I'm, I was actually very pleased with all of this. If I could make even one critique was they were just better when they were on the boat. The part afterwards, even though it is a short movie, I would start to say felt like it might have belonged to a different film, and I wondered if it would have been possible to just stay on the boat and per- do your musical performances and whatnot on the boat with the overlap of the gangsters and stuff like that, and then kind of conclude with a big moment at the end of them getting off the boat with the passport scene and the Chevalier thing, which was very funny. And I thought that that just going out and getting off the boat, and that like you said, Noah, like there's not a real clear why are we stopping here if the boat stops. And get you get off, that's a natural place to kind of complete your journey. And it's interesting, according to Turner Classic Movies, Robert Osborne said a sequel was planned for this film that would have continued the gangster theme. And during the development of that film, Charles Lindbergh's son was kidnapped by gangsters. And the writers quickly shifted gears out of what was a very large storyline. And uh, Horse Feathers was the next movie. And it was based on a, another earlier stage show of theirs. But I kind of wish we had gotten that sequel. And like I said, the uh, the last part of this movie where the gangsters are overlapping, I think Groucho is really funny in this gangster-y world. And Harpo, too. I mean, it just it, all of them are really funny in this gangster world. And I kind of want that gangster movie... So much so that I just want them to stay on the boat here and then give us, I don't know what the name of Monkey Business 2 would be, bananas, maybe. I, I think that that would be a really fun thing to do, to have a gangster movie in New York with the March Brothers. Noah, have I gone too far?
2: No, I agree with a, a lot of what you're saying here. And and in their next film, Horse Feathers, it's interesting. There is a very underplayed gangster element in Horse Feathers. Chico plays a Prohibition bootlegger, and there's a major sequence that takes place in a speakeasy. And it does seem like there are some gangster elements in that film even though it never really becomes a gangster story. And I suspect some of that was kind of leftover material from either from Monkey Business or from the envisioned um, sequel to Monkey. But you're absolutely right. It's a good milieu for them. I mean, the Marx Brothers characters are, among other things, Broadway riffraff. You know, they're Damon Runyon types. And so they fit in very well with this kind of, not just gangsters, but sort of Broadway slash Hollywood gangsters. Tough-talking guys who aren't really scary and have that colorful early 20th century Broadway slang. I agree with you that the scene of Groucho sort of facing off with the gangster Alki Briggs. Briggs has a gun and Groucho has language and and wins the confrontation and it's just beautiful. And the density you're talking about too, it's another great point. One of the reasons these movies reward repeated viewings is because it's not possible to get all the jokes the first time. And it was very, wound up really working for them. When they made these films, of course, they didn't expect people to watch them over and over again and talk about them on podcasts. These were, you know, disposable entertainments, you'd go to the movie theater and see it, and then the next year you'd go see their next film. But because of that density, uh, it really does reward repeated viewing. I've probably seen Monkey Business hundreds of times, but rewatching watching it, the purposes of this conversation, there are a couple of things that, eh, I don't know, I probably had noticed them before, but they still struck me anew because there's so much to respond to.
0: Yeah, and uh, let's, let's talk about Nathan... I detect that you said you like the the witty wordplay so I'm guessing you're a bigger fan of like the Groucho Chico kind of moments where Chico t- transforms words with it's like an Italian immigrant kind of act, perhaps, maybe where like words are shifted to similar sounding words. And then you're having two separate conversations at once. And you're talking past each other. And Groucho obviously is a master of like he's like a bag full of knives with his words. He can cut anybody up. He's going to he's uh, he's a remarkably fast paced worded guy. Like you said, Noah, you, you kind of got to watch it multiple times to get everything that Groucho is saying. I'm detecting that this is the the, the area that you like the most. Yeah, and
1: it's funny, in some of those scenes, there's a great scene where they're in the captain's cabin, and they're having a bit of a wordplay competition between Groucho and Chico, and... It's almost hilarious. Where, like, where they're on the globe? Yeah, they're on the globe, and they're having like the vessel. (laughs) They're they're having yes, the vessel, the mutineers versus matinee, and 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 there's all these jokes that at various points of the scene they point out. Oh man, I think you're really stretching that particular pun that you're trying to make there, as if as if they're improv ing as they're as they're going, and not all the jokes have to land perfectly. They just have to keep coming. One of the challenges for this movie for a newcomer is that they never name their main characters other than in the credits, so you really are left with their different kinds of humor and their appearances as the only way to start telling them apart and relating to each one of their particular stories.
0: They don't say Groucho, Chico, Harp?
1: Nope. It's a real interesting thing. I I never noticed that.
0: I just know them so much as these characters, but this is your first time seeing them, so you're going to notice that a lot more. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, really. it It took me multiple viewings to understand who was who, who I was getting through on the second end was, okay, this is Chico, this is Groucho, and this is the kind of humor that I'm expecting from each of these. But as you do that... Because each of their brands of humor are distinct from one another, they, these are not all language people. These are some people do it this way, some people do it this way, some people are more into the slapstick, and some people are more into the music, and it gives them a comedy character of their own, which is really effective, um, but especially the Groucho wordplay humor was absolutely my favorite.
0: I, it's funny like i'm and like you said there's something for everybody here because I, I, it just takes me back to my 10 year old self harpo has always been my favorite like whether it's what he's doing like i mean sometimes he just goes around cutting people's ties off and like you know or just eating stuff off of people's desks and stuff like that i mean you just don't know what random things he's gonna do and he's just incredibly funny without saying anything which is a very hard thing to do on film in a talking movie era so it's interesting that, as you pointed out, each of these guys are bringing something to the table. You know, Chico has a, you know, he's kind of a lovable fool who kind of, like you said, plays with the words a lot. And Harpo is this very heartwarming. You, you, you just, you can't not smile at him. I mean, I mean, he cares dearly for the little frog in his hat, even and stuff like that. We talked about Groucho already. Zeppo's the one that I think he, of the, of the Marx Brothers movies I've seen this so far, I feel like this is the one where he gets the most run. I just don't think he has a voice of his own. Noah, correct me if I'm wrong here. Zeppo, obviously, he drops out on later, later efforts. I don't feel like he brings as much to the table as his three brothers.
2: Yeah, you're definitely not wrong about that. And I, w- I was interested in your. So your specific opinion about this, because uh, for someone watching their first Marx Brothers movie, that's one of the things that's immediately odd about them, at least when they were a four-man act, is that you have these three brilliant, distinctive characters, and this one kind of plain, um, unassuming guy sort of standing off to the side who doesn't really have much to do. Uh Yes, Zeppa was an extra Marx Brothers. Um, and this was a bit of a tradition in their vaudeville years. For much of their vaudeville career, their other brother, Gummo, was in the act. It it was Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Gummo for a long time. And Gummo, like Zeppo, played uh, the additional Marx brother. Sometimes he'd be Groucho's son, or he would form a duo with Groucho the same way Harpo and Chico tended to operate as this kind of two-man team within the team. But Gummo didn't have that much to do in the act and wasn't that interested in being in the act. So when he was drafted during the First World War, he was replaced by the baby brother, Zeppo, and Zeppo never really had a chance to develop. He was notably younger than the others. And he, he sometimes is talked about as though he is their straight man, but it's not quite true because he doesn't actively play straight man very often to any of them. Groucho, Harpo, and Chico are often one another's straight.
0: I'm glad you pointed that out. Like, I, I like, he's not like a Bud Abbott. Yeah. Or like, Or like uh, Ricky Ricardo was to Lucille Ball. Like, I mean, these people are very funny and escalate the situation by ramping the other person off. Uh, It's
2: not his game. Once in a while, there is a scene where he is a straight man in the traditional sense. In Animal Crackers, he has a scene like that with Groucho. But... But for the most part, no, he isn't. He's also, sometimes people try to understand Zappo by saying he's the juvenile. He's the romantic lead, which is a little bit true in monkey business. And it's a little bit true in horse feathers, but it's...
0: I was going to say, did women at the time find him to be handsome? Was that what they were going to go for? For this, like, is he like, is he the face to sell this? Maybe it
2: was, I was wondering that myself. I think they sort of maybe tried to use him that way. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a more conventionally handsome than the others, certainly when they're in costume he sings well enough, but he's not like a great crooner. No, I. it seems like he doesn't quite have the equipment to be a real romantic leading man. On the other hand, as with being a comedian, he's never really given the chance. I don't think we ever got a sense of what Zeppo might be able to do. What does seem undeniable is that they are better with him than without him. I mean, the first five movies are the ones that have Zeppo in them. And I think It's not just a coincidence. It's not that Zeppo contributes that much that really makes those films great, but just his presence, just the fact that there is this guy who's only there for one reason, because he is a Marx brother. It furthers the idea that these are not normal movies or normal stories. They're built around the personality of this team. And just as it's completely unlikely that if you were sitting down to design a comedy or a comedy team, I don't think you'd ever say, "Okay, we're going to have an Italian immigrant A mute and a verbal wise guy, you know? It it could only happen by accident, evolving over many years in front of thousands of audiences. And Zeppo's like that too. He's in the act for practical reasons because their mother was concerned that he was becoming a juvenile delinquent and she wanted him in the act where she could keep an eye on.
0: Interesting. And, And I wanted to ask here also, one of the things that I think is interesting in Marx Brothers' humor is The people around them are very serious and they treat everything they say seriously, even though particularly with Groucho or Chico or what Harpo even does. They're not being serious at all. They're bringing in comedic mayhem into the room. And I think one of the funny things that I really appreciate that I know my wife actually doesn't connect with these movies as well is she doesn't feel like the people react to the absurdity in what they're doing. She's like, wouldn't you just punch Groucho? And like I said, maybe, but that's not what's humor is about like they by staying serious it enables the next line to come and it stays in this little world that's sometimes surrealism is drawn up around the marx brothers and i do feel like there that is a fair thing to do you've entered this different way of communicating where everybody is treating these bombastic things perhaps most notably in duck soup but everywhere it's here too of They're treating it seriously, like Elkie Briggs is a gangster, and Groucho is just saying the most absurd things around him. The very absurdity of it being taken seriously is also funny.
2: Absolutely. Yes, the straight world that surrounds the Marx Brothers is, in its way, as funny as they are. And that's also where the Marx Brothers work, intentionally or not, does feel like it is satiric, Um, that the joke sometimes seems to, um, that it's an attack on polite society, wherein polite society is too polite to object to the way it's being treated by the market, even to the point of, you know, Groucho having an obviously painted on mustache and eyebrows. That's what a fraud he is, you know, but he's daring you to accuse him of. Um, and of course, nobody ever does. The Monkey Business is a little different from most of their other films in that all the brothers know each other at the very beginning and they don't have characters to play. As you point out in the credits, their character names are just Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Zeppo. Most of their other work, they have character names and usually groucho plays a sort of fraudulent member of high society like you say in duck soup he's the president of a country not much time is spent on the question of how this character ever got to be president of the country but everyone respects him and takes him seriously and of course the joke is on them
0: yeah and i just think it's i think that is one of those things that does rub off later again i like abbott and costello and i mean sometimes you see costello saying these ridiculous things in some cases i think i think they they owe a lot to the marx brothers when you watch how this unfolds obviously it's only a two-man act but that notion of somebody's taking themselves too seriously i don't know that it predates the marx brothers or not but it's i think it ripples beyond what i said i think it goes it goes well into comedy in the comedy in the future and that's a very cool and powerful thing i think like you said that I think that it, I I don't I wasn't there to know the writers, but I would be very disappointed if this wasn't a calculated satire of people who were taking themselves too seriously. They they did that in the coconuts with a land grab, like these like land barons. They did this with like you said, duck soup with world leaders. On the night of the opera, the opera is a very it can be a very viewed as a very stiff world, and they're they're there to shake the table to rattle the cages. Yes. And I think and that's uh and that's the that's what makes them irreverent. Like nothing's nothing's off limits. It's it's kind of kind of cool that they can do that. I don't know. Nathan, like you said, this is this is your first time into them. Are you picking up, like like I said, so many of the things are different from their other things. Obviously, this one is just a little more simple and straightforward in terms of the gags, and there's not as much satire in this one, is there?
1: I think that there is actually a fair amount of satire um, that really fits to my taste, but a lot of the... Stuff that I enjoyed that is that sort of thing actually happens at the party in the musical areas of that where they are playing around. It's it's almost, especially researching after the fact of sort of the desire that Paramount had not to have actual sung music or musical numbers. It's very funny. You have a scene where there's a soprano who's been brought aboard, but the context that she's been brought in is that, oh, we're going to have this musical number that everyone's going to hate, and we're going to make fun of (laughs) the stereotypes of soprano singers who go off book and are too warbly. And then we're going to follow it up with a crazy harp number that may or may not be improv, as as is sort of implied, um, even though it was a written song. But it's sort of all these things that are making fun of the way that people have these you have musicians in the background and they're expected to behave a certain way and what if we just take that a little bit over and you know give them a little bit more life of their own and explore that and i I feel like that's a place where this humor really soars where it's uh, a little bit of satire that's really successful, in my opinion.
0: You know what? I guess I stand corrected. It's not as overt, but you're right. It's still there. The satire so. comes
2: from their presence. Like they just have a satirical presence, and it's a little bit part of the reason it seems a little more modern than other comedy of its era is because it it took comedy a while to catch up with this idea of the comedian as hyper competent superhero. You know, I mean, you know, like you talk about Abbott and Costello, and it. It's true that uh, at their best, Abbott and Costello sometimes did get to a Marx Brothers level in terms of the ingeniousness of the wordplay. But Abbott and Costello are still struggling to understand you know, Lou would like to just get the names of the guys on the team so he understands what he needs to know. <laughs> um, just like Laurel and Hardy, you know, they, they would like to do a good job. If Laurel and Hardy were capable of just moving the piano up the stairs, they would. They would love to. Um, but they're incompetent. With the Marx Brothers, they could. They could do it. You know, they could make all this perfectly clear if they wanted to. To use the Lauren and Hardy example, for the Marx Brothers, it would be much more fun to destroy the piano.
1: They had a perfectly good disguise in that barrel, but they just couldn't resist a little bit of
2: singing. (laughs) Yes. Right. And even the idea that in the very first scene when the first mate tells the captain, you know, that he knows there are four stowaways because they were singing Sweet Adeline. But of course, one of those stowaways is a mute. So to be able to.
0: Well, that's not actually, that's not actually Harpo singing in their eyes. Well,
2: there's some controversy about that. I, I only hear three voices. There are those who, who insist Harpo is singing, but you know, this first mate who seems absolutely incapable of, of catching these stowaways nevertheless can, can hear the sound from inside barrels of three guys and one mute guy (laughs) singing sweet Adeline.
1: You know, and and who knows? Maybe he has another phonograph recording
2: in there.
0: I was gonna say. (laughs) I was gonna say. I'm disappointed. There's not a a honking presence within the song at humorous moments.
2: Yes, yes, that would be a part for Harpo. But you know, if, if Chaplin made a movie about being a stowaway on an ocean liner, it would be about trying to avoid the captain, trying not to be caught by the first mate. The Marx Brothers oh, barge right into the captain's uh, stateroom and they eat his lunch. You know, they have no concern.
0: Oh, Chaplin would also pull at your heartstrings with the class differences and like the excesses of the upper class and the lower class. Like, like you'd have a very different movie if this was a Chaplin movie. Yeah, they do
1: that here too a little bit. There's there's some great lines in there about I didn't eat yesterday, I didn't eat today, and I'm not going to eat tomorrow. So that makes three days. <laughs> yes,
0: mustard without roast beefs no good. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, the, the stockholder yeah. of yesteryear is the stowaway of today. Uh, the, a line that probably had a little extra resonance in 1931.
0: Yeah. Noah, can you tell us much about Norman MacLeod? It's hard to look up information about directors when you haven't seen much of their other work. And uh, yeah, like, obviously, he goes on to do the uh, horse feathers, which I have seen, but I haven't seen anything else from him. What do we know about Norman
2: MacLeod? He's an interesting director. As, As I'm sure you know, at this time, filmmaking, especially in the Hollywood studio system, was not nearly a director's medium, the way it becomes later in the 20th century. The producer was mostly the Person whose vision determined what the film would be, and the director. You know, there were directors in the '30s who had uh, the ability to put an artistic stamp on a film. Some of them were mostly traffic cops, and with the Marx Brothers, the traffic cop aspect of direction was more important. But I think MacLeod was the most effective director they ever had. On he was very good at directing comedians, and he was very good at allowing the comedian's style and personality to dominate the movies. He directed two of the Marx Brothers' best films, This and Horse Feathers. And he also worked very successfully with W.C. Fields. He directed It's a Gift, which is one of Fields' great movies. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, one of Danny Kaye's best, um, McLeod directed. He worked with Bob Hope a number of times, um, directed Road to Rio. He also directed that Twilight Zone episode that Buster Keaton is in. Um, so I think that was kind of his specialty was to understand the style and the rules of a specific comedian's work and allow that comedian to drive the film.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like this isn't just the brothers doing this. And this may attribute to what the movies are, but I sounded like McLeod said that there were up to 12 writers helping the four brothers write this stuff. Yeah. And then. That alone Would contribute to why these movies are so different tonally from each one. To their benefit, I would say, nobody wants to see the same movie made over and over again. But also, that also speaks to the density of the jokes. I mean, it takes a team to write that much comedy into one, it isn't even a 90 minute movie.
2: Absolutely right. Yes, uh, there are four uh, credited screenwriters, uh, all of whom are really humorists working on their first movie. S.J. Perelman, who of course is one of the greatest comic essayists of all Time and will be John Stone, who had written for I'll Say She is the Marx Brothers' first Broadway show, and Arthur Sheikman and Nat Perrin. That's the Those are the principal screenwriters. But then in addition to those four, each Marx brother would employ gagmen who would come to the set and often on the spot try to come up with more jokes. They still really were not used to this idea of doing material that had never seen an audience. Their previous two films, you know, the material had been done on stage hundreds of times by the time they filmed it. But here they had no barometer to know how the laughs were. And what often would happen is the crew would laugh on the first take and the second take. And then after the crew got used to the material and stopped laughing, the Marx brothers would start to feel like the material was weak because they weren't hearing laughs. They were not, they were not used to playing to silence. And so they would, you know, the perfectly good jokes were thrown out all the time, not because anybody in the general public had ever heard them, but because the guys making the movie were sick of Yeah,
0: and I wanted to ask about that. So you mentioned earlier, and I'm glad you pointed this out, th- everything that they had done prior to this with Animal Crackers and the Coconuts were established, we we have an act, we've built this up through vaudeville humor, and then that built into a play in, on the theater. And this was their first time making a movie do you notice whether it be through the direction of I guess you're saying Mankiewicz the producer would have been a more creative force than McLeod the director but do you feel like through Mankiewicz's and McLeod's influences that this differs in how it's coming across because of how it's being made knowing that this is a Hollywood LA produced feature movie that's meant to be a movie as opposed to their previous work.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think the difference is, is very apparent. And if you, if you just watch the films. Now, personally, I'm a big fan of their early career and I'm a theater person. And part of the way I love the Marx brothers is as figures of the theater, live performers, and I think in contrast to a lot of their peers in classic comedy, that was always true about. They never really became cinematic artists, and their movies aren't necessarily great films in the usual sense. Their films are a great record of their work as performers. So I don't, to me, it's not to slight coconuts and animal crackers to say the things I'm about to say, but it is just true that coconuts and animal crackers, you have much longer scenes, much less kinetic cutting. Uh, there is physical humor in them, but there's less of it. Um, it's much more verbally oriented and it's much more out front, you know, musical numbers, presentational addressed to the audience. Whereas in monkey business, at just at the very beginning when they're Discovered in the barrels and they're evading the ship's crew. You know, there's just a cut every few seconds, very much like modern dynamic filmmaking. There's no scene and there's certainly no shot just is allowed to play out for a long time. My co-host on the podcast, Matthew Conium, in his book, The Annotated Marx Brothers, uh, he, he puts it very nicely. He says that in coconuts and animal crackers, it's, they weren't making films as much as they were being filmed. But in monkey business here, the, yes, it is a film. They're making a film and it uses the language of the cinema. It's also very early on in the talkie era and coconuts and animal crackers being filmed at a less technically, um, developed studio in New York. You know, they were doing all they could just to capture all this stuff on film with a synchronized soundtrack. Um, But by 1931, filmmaking for talkies is just a much more flexible art form. A lot of this stuff wouldn't have been possible earlier, even if they had wanted
0: Nathan, stepping into this one, do you feel like you pick up on the fact that, again, as uh, Noah mentioned that these guys have built up a stage act, do you feel that stage presence coming through, coming into this now, knowing that you're a fan of the theater as well?
1: It does. These scenes are put together in a way where you feel, I really feel the absence of a musical number under a lot of these. Ship chase, for example. See, there's actually scenes during the ship chases where I think they go on too long because There isn't a feeling of a direction to them. They're just running away and there's no running, there's no place to run to that gives a.
0: But he runs around the steps and then he goes around for an extra lap for good measure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but there's no, oh, we gotta hide here and then hijinks of getting there giving that sort of thread. But if you had some sort of an additional layer of music, a layer of just something that I think the theater would op would give them as a way of part of that language you could sell something like that being as random where in film i think you need a little bit more of a reason that the audience should be expecting or hoping for something to happen and i i think that that is a tension that they have in in how they're operating here that works in some places and doesn't work in others where you can really tell that they're trying something that is more filmic but isn't really taking full advantage of what that offers them
0: interesting i i i see a translation having seen coconuts in this uh coconuts the music numbers almost seemingly like they think they're gonna wow you on their own they don't connect into the story in fact one of them hits like right before an auction like and it doesn't really feel like why why are we dancing now and it doesn't feel like it integrates with this one, whereas the music performances in this one, they found a way to make it very organic and part of the action. There was a performance, they stepped up, they performed, they're, and they're, they're interesting, compelling performers, and that works. And I felt like the coconuts was just like, maybe there was just some novelty that you can see this stuff and you're bringing these big, elaborate dance spectacles to the masses through video, but I got to say, those things were not shot in such a way that were so artistically done to what Noah is saying. Like, filming techniques developed to where that the visual flair of how how you're filming this stuff can take on its own appreciation letter level later. I felt like some of the things that they were doing in their earlier movies would have worked on stage and would have just been like, wow, look at this big musical number. Whereas they come through a little bit flat in black and white movie format. Fair
2: or not? No, I don't know. Uh, yeah, absolutely fair. Uh, um, I mean, it's certainly fair. Any opinion you might have on that subject would be fair. But I, I also think you're right. There is... I think even if you are like me, a good audience for the early talkies that exist strictly as a record of what was happening on Broadway at the time, you still go into those almost as though you're watching a documentary, you know, rather than a piece of entertainment. That's why like uh, the things we say about coconuts, you know, yeah, I, I wouldn't tell somebody to make coconuts their first Marx Brothers because there are things about it that hold a modern audience at a little bit of a distance. But once you love the Marx Brothers, and particularly if you're interested in the history of Uh, around them You know, coconuts is endlessly fascinating. It's pretty much the first musical talkie. And one of the things you see when you watch it is the birth of an art form. Uh, They didn't even know when they were making coconuts if the soundtrack was going to cover up part of the frame. You know, they always were working, thinking we might be missing part of the picture because they didn't know yet exactly how they were going to attach the soundtrack to the physical film. It's incredibly early. And as you point out, we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary of. Well, obviously, the 100-year anniversary of everything done in the early 20s and getting pretty pretty close to the late 20s and 30s. Yeah, I think also, as far as music goes, in the next film, Horse Feathers, it's sort of the best of both worlds because you have all the mobility of monkey business and also some of the old stuff from the stage years, like Groucho being introduced with a big song, for example. Uh, Horse Feathers has some great musical numbers in it that are performed by the Marx Brothers. On the other hand... Without it, Monkey Business does perfectly well and as you point out, it certainly doesn't feel like a, a movie that does without music. They kind of they kind of play performers in addition to being perform these very undefined characters who they're playing. We don't really know who they are, where they came from, or where they're going. But a lot of what they do is vaudevillian. Stuff.
0: I was going to ask you, where, where, do we know where they're coming from? We know they're coming into New York.
2: Yeah. Um, there's a newspaper at one point. You see a shot of a newspaper, which is a London paper. And so based on that, yeah, they, they seem to be taking a cruise from, from London to New York. But you know, yeah, it's not clear if they're supposed to be immigrants or if they're just kind of con men. There's dialogue that tells you that they're not actually brothers in the storyline because Chico talks about his grandfather you know it's a great grandfather by the way yeah it's a great grandfather he's coming by here man <laughs> but they leave all that very ambiguous as i say most of the the things we would think are necessary in a comedy are just ignored by the marx brothers no character no motivation no plot just jokes they're just joke machines
0: you're right it does seem like they don't pass the uh screenwriters or like This isn't how you make a movie kind of thing, but they did it before the rules were made. And it's interesting how much what they did amplifies through those things later when the rules are still established.
2: Even their improv is like that, you know, they were famously improvisational. And on stage, you know, people would go see them again and again, because it was never the same show twice. On film, pretty much everything they do is either scripted or it's stuff that was developed through improv, but locked in after that. And yet, when we talk about improv, I mean, it's not the way we think about improv now, creating the reality of a scene and obeying its rules and saying yes and to each other and, you know, the art form that that improv has developed into. This is much more the kind of improv where you just do whatever you can think of that might get a laugh. And Marx Brothers improv would be like Groucho's in the middle of a a romantic comedy scene with with Margaret Dumont, who is often their leading lady. And in the middle of the scene, Harpo decides to just run across the stage honking his horn and and chasing a chorus girl, you know, interfering with the play rather than helping it along. And, And then the onus would be on Groucho to try to justify what had just happened with a wisecrack or, you know, recapture the audience's attention. Uh, They are as much competing for your attention as anything else.
0: Let's talk about the the wardrobe here. Nathan, do you like the look of each of the Marx Brothers? Because they all put together their own little look. They
1: each have a lot of personality in the way that they look. Groucho gets... I mean, I can... Now that I know that there is something out there where he is playing the president of some land, and (laughs) uh, I can totally see that with this. (laughs) Freedonia. Well, whoever these people are, they've elected someone who will obviously enjoy any diplomatic speeches with leaders of other nations, and those leaders of other nations will hate talking to him completely, and it would be very fun to watch. And, as you've been kind of alluding to earlier, Chico has a very sort of strong personality in his dressing. Harpo, pretty strong personality. Zeppo just is kind of, your, he's got a suit, he's got a tie, he's got a pleasant round face he you know he's he's there and i think he's the only one whose wardrobe doesn't have some kind of very strong impression to it i feel so bad for him he didn't find his character (laughs) i know that there's there's hope for him in a couple of locations but he never has enough lines to really break out of that which is kind of unfortunate because i think that as the one who kind of started the, uh, we have to all sing to get past the customs officials gag. That was a great, that was a great, oh man, I want more of this character later to do more stuff like this. And didn't happen.
2: Absolutely. Zeppo doesn't make a big comic contribution, but it's possible that um, you've got to sing one of Chevalier's songs to get off this boat it is the most absurd thing any Marx brother ever said. It was perfect. Well, they, they, they test them all.
0: <laughs> yeah, what do, actually maybe, Noah, why does Groucho paint the mustache on for, the,
2: for and the eyebrows too? Well, the practical answer is that he, he, his character on stage didn't have a mustache through much of their vaudeville career. He was playing a, an elderly German character up until pretty much the First World War. Uh, in 1921, they started a new vaudeville act, which was called On the Mezzanine and it it called for Groucho's character to have a mustache. And this has never been verified, but according to oft-repeated legend, he began by pasting with spirit gum a pretty realistic-looking sort of fur or crepe mustache onto his face, a fake mustache that looked real, like chap. And then one night, late for an entrance, he didn't have time to, to glue the mustache on, so he just grabbed some black grease paint and smeared it across his face and went on like he goes all the way onto his cheeks that's the thing about the mustache it's not just that it's painted on it's implausible you couldn't grow a mustache like it overlaps yeah it goes onto his cheeks it is upper lip it's a big black rectangle you couldn't grow that mustache it's flagrantly fraudulent and the matching eyebrows which don't get mentioned as much but are just as much a part of his look You know, the other practical reason for it, I think, is that in vaudeville, audiences sometimes had a hard time telling the Marx Brothers apart. The costumes developed gradually. And as with the Beatles, you know, when the Beatles first took the world by storm, People couldn't tell them apart, and then very quickly, the idea that you wouldn't be able to identify each of the four Beatles just seems ridiculous. Well, it's like that with the Marx Brothers too.
0: Interesting. And
2: I think Groucho's makeup made it very clear who he was, and also those eyebrows,
0: Harpo's as well. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: The hat, the bagginess, like all that stuff creates pockets for him to put
2: who knows what in. Absolutely. And it, and if you're playing in a huge Broadway theater, especially or a, or a big theater. Uh, in vaudeville you know some of the audience is pretty far away and the people in the back of the mezzanine are still going to get your the ironic edge to what you're doing if your eyebrows read that well from far away
0: nice i'm glad you i'm glad you had some insights into that one nathan you alluded what are what are your some of your high points for the music here
1: i love and adore the two musical numbers in at the party i think and and it's really four four different songs that they that they Work their way through there in sort of two different sessions, and I think that really is a not really knowing how effective they were going to be at playing these things. And also at the beginning of the movie, when they're singing "Sweet Adeline," it's awful. They are <laughs> deliberately, I, I assume, out of tune and out of time with each other. And uh, by the time the party scenes start I'm like, "Oh no! Are they gonna? Are, are, are we gonna be treated to a?" Bunch of really unfortunate uh, performance numbers, but Chico has a really awesome technique at the piano of of the sort of very deliberate way that he plays a lot of his, his uh, the songs that are being played there. And uh,
0: it's not just what you hear; it's like you got to watch him. Yeah, the way like he's he, working his fingers—he he and- has
1: to be watched. Yeah, watched closely on, on the way that he's doing that. And, and he's he plays two pieces. One of them is this uh, piece, Pizzicato, which was written in 1876 by a French composer, Leo Delbay. And so that piece would have been around for a while, and then it transitions over to a piece that was written for the movie, When I Take My Sugar to Tea. Um, and it, it is really funny thinking about sort of The background of things, they've been told by Paramount you can't have all of this stuff in, uh, you know, with with, with words and everything. So a version of that song had been recorded by actual big bands um, beforehand and released to popular acclaim as almost advertisement for the movie, I gather, but in. Retrospect, it is then funny that in the actual movie, you just get this piano and instrumental cover in the background. I just want
0: to say that Chico is like a magnetic personality when he's playing. It's just there's a style to how he's moving his hands. It's really graceful and smooth, and you can just watch him do it for far longer than he's on the screen for this one. Yeah. No. Any any musical notes before we move on to the superlatives?
2: will oh, I'll just agree with you on on all of that. I could watch Chico play the piano forever, and yes, his distinctive style is just a great, entertaining vaudevillian talent and and Harpo's harp solos um are totally different you know there's there is a gag at the beginning of this one where Harpo kind of becomes the the arm of the harpist who he scares away from the harp at the very beginning but except for a few gags Harpo's very serious at the harp and his solos are just kind of lovely and beautiful and the only real example of Kind of down notes in there were a little bit of emotional resonance that doesn't happen at any other time.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt there. And it is funny, like, as you say, the performance itself, the music itself is very sort of played straight in a way. It's enthusiastic, it's got a lot of energy to it, but it's pretty much played straight. Meanwhile, we're getting this sort of comedy routine of the harp strings are a little bit weird compared to what you would expect, and he's got this frog in his hat the whole time. Yes. Great to watch.
0: So let's hand out some awards. What do you say, guys? MVP of Monkey Business,
2: Noah. Well, if I had to pick one, and it is tough with a a movie that stars four people who are such a unit, but I think I might have to go with Harpo, much as my heart belongs to Groucho. uh, I think the expanded cinematic possibilities of what they're able to do after they sort of break free of um, their earlier work. Gives Harpo the most opportunity. And although he's terrifically funny in Animal Crackers, and I think Coconuts is his best performance ever, he never got a sequence to himself. You know, he never got this kind of, um, uh, like the puppet show scene, the Punch and Judy scene in Monkey Business, or what he does with the frog um, in his throat. Uh, Harpo just seems to sparkle through this movie. Um, and I think the, uh, even though the problems of early sound don't hold him back quite as much as they hold groucho and chico back earlier in monkey business he's just kind of released he's just been let out of the box and he sort i think he he by a very narrow just by a nose he walks off
0: yeah yeah mine mine's with you with harpo as well nathan do you have a different
1: answer my heart is with groucho i am i agree completely with everything you just said about harpo's wonderful (laughs) comedy routines everywhere but I don't know. The soul of this movie for me is in the wordplay that some of them, especially Groucho, get to that just totally blanks out the minds of anybody who they come in contact with where, oh, what are you doing in my stateroom? What are you doing with my wife? And that sort of thing. And Groucho just talks circles around these people until they give up and go away, basically. And I think that is almost, for me, the soul of this movie.
2: Yeah. Best supporting, Noah. Well, I would give this award to Thelma Todd, who plays Lucille Briggs in the movie. Uh, This is the first of two pictures she did with the Marx Brothers. She's also in Horse Feathers. And in these two films, she replaces Margaret Dumont, who is usually their foil and Thelma Todd is a totally different character. Dumont was a dignified society lady. And Monkey Business and Horse Feathers gives them a completely different kind of leading lady, you know, in this case, a gangster's mall. But Thelma Todd is uh, young and attractive and plays this kind of sexy 30s uh, insouciant character. And it gives a different tone to the groucho courtship of her than, than it had back with Margaret Dumont. He... Is no uh, nicer to her, but he's insulting in a very different way. She's great. She's a great comedian in her own right, worked with lots of other great comics, and also appeared in some of her own comic shorts. Um, She's excellent. Like so many beautiful women of early Hollywood, she died tragically young.
0: Yeah, I read that. Just four years later, she died in a garage from accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. That is... That's a
2: really sad way to go. It's terrible. Yes, she was actually in real life was mixed up with gangsters. And, you know, there's a line in Monkey Business, you may have noticed. Groucho says to her at one point, uh, you're a woman who's been getting nothing but dirty brakes. Well, we can clean and tighten your brakes. I have to stay in the garage all night, uh, which was later noticed as kind of an eerie coincidence. She died in a garage. But she's wonderful in the movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, and you're right. The Margaret Dumont thing is great when Groucho plays off of her. But it's normally like he's hitting on this like rich, well-to-do woman who's not necessarily a looker per se, but it's really fun to see Groucho going back and forth with a woman who is quite attractive as well. You know, even by today's standards. Yeah. Um I'm with you, yeah. no. That's that's <laughs> you're two for two with me and you said most of my reasons for it. Nathan, can you be different for us? I will not be different on this one. I also
1: will <laughs> go with Telma Todd because she's the <laughs> only one in the entire movie who gives it back to Groucho in a way and uh I think that works great too. <laughs> That's great. Now, hidden gem can be a person or thing, but what is an underappreciated
0: minor thing within this movie? No, well,
2: I could say Zeppo and be funny, but um, I th- I think my answer is <laughs> Ben Taggart. He plays the captain, and he I think he's a great heavy. He's just the kind of um, you know stuffy authority figure who you love to see the Marx Brothers mow down. And although he obviously doesn't get jokes or laughs in the movie, a lot of his moments are just funny in the very first scene when he reads the note that the stowaways have written, he looks at the note and he gets all puffy and indignant and he says, so I'm an old goat am I? You know, it's just great great uh, comedy heavy work He's a
0: good caricature, I, I definitely like your pick there. Nathan
1: Hidden Gem uh, I mentioned it earlier. It's the song "Pizzicato" that uh, Chico plays with the piano, and I just think it was just such a fun, fun piece. And for me, who that is, especially starting to get into the era of music that is my favorite, and especially some of these French composers, that uh, I knew it. It's, it's just wonderful to hear it as almost pop culture at the time in a way. And I and I'm creating this head now, where you know we have these sort of like. Every ten years, songs will come back into people's memories for a little bit of a while, while people play them again for a little bit and Mm -hmm. hear them around. And I'm imagining that that's what's happening with this: that they're juxtaposing, "Oh yeah, this is an old classic," (laughs) this polka from 1876, that's sort of embedded in people's memories from a while ago, and then we're gonna transition to something brand new and. You know, there are wonderful things about both. And that's what I'm, that's what my head canon of this is. And it's great. I knew
0: it once you started talking about earlier, I said, I, Nathan's going with Pizzicato. I just, I, I do it. But, um, my hidden gem going to be the Marks brothers, real life father, Sam yeah. Frenchy Marks. is, you can see him briefly in a cameo appearance sitting on top of the luggage behind the brothers on the pier as they waved to their first mate. So, uh. It's his film debut. So, Marx Brothers and Daddy Marks. Good
2: answer, yes.
0: Recast. You had to cast somebody else in their spot. Who would it be?
2: Noah. Well, I, I have I have two answers, but I would replace them with the same person. There are two encounters in this movie where Groucho insults a woman who might as well be Margaret Dumont. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both... Small roles that Margaret Dumont probably wouldn't have been cast in at this point. Um, but there's um, a woman named Cecil Cunningham who plays the opera singer, uh, who he confronts pretending to be a reporter in the scene where they're getting off the uh, the boat. Uh, the character's name is Madame Swimsky. She said...
0: Man, you, you are reading off my note sheet here, by the way, <laughs> but go ahead. Like, this, is unca- this is uncanny. No, I like the way you think. But this is this is the
2: person I'm replacing with well, and everything. Well, you know, great minds, etc., etc. So that, that role, or then it's also a- Charlotte Minot plays um, the woman out on the port who is having uh, a sort of tryst with one of the party guests and Groucho confronts her. Uh, she even looks a lot like a, a slightly slimmed down version of Margaret Dumont. And so I don't think it ever would have happened, but it would have been kind of fun for Dumont to have gotten one of those.
0: I think Dumont should have gotten the Cecil yeah. Cunningham role. I don't think Cecil Cunningham's that, I don't know. I don't think she does much with that screen time. And I think Margaret Dumont has more of a character fleshed out for who she is than Zeppo. Absolutely so, true. Yeah. with in working with them. So I don't know if that's a spicy take or not. But Nathan, I look to you to be different again. And I will be.
1: This is a film. I, I didn't have anyone that I felt really needed to be swapped out. So this, this is not a, I think this person should be swapped out answer. This is more an a, an observation of similarities. Uh, the first movie that I did as a proper host of this podcast was Amadeus, and I was just kind of laughing because in the back of my mind, Harpo and the actor Tom Hulce, who plays Mozart himself in Amadeus, have a lot of the same energy. They're brilliant musicians who make fun of everyone around them and who... Don't act the way that anyone would expect them to act in a lot of ways. So I'm just going to go with that. Is just there's a lot of the same energy here, and it would be very funny to see Tom Hulk. I'm now imagining
2: Harpo laughing like that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: and it's great. Best it? shot. Uh, no, I love the shot that introduces the Marx Brothers. I-, I think it's one of the one of the real key iconic moments from their whole career. Um, and if you imagine going to see this film, you've seen Coconuts and Animal Crackers, and you know that those were based on stage plays. How are they going to bring them on? You know, what's their big entrance going to be? And you hear the singing from inside the barrels, and the camera somewhat laboriously moves in close on these four barrels that say Kibbered Herring on them. And after finishing their barbershop moment... They pop out of these barrels, um and it looks as though they just played Carnegie Hall. You know they just could not be more pleased with themselves. It's an absolute great moment.
1: I like your pick there, Nathan best shot, just a little bit of random visual humor that that I did find very funny. It was the uh <laughs> the Russian nesting <laughs> when uh they're they're running around, and Harpo sits down on somebody and gets up and runs off later, but uh. It turns out that that person might also have been sitting on one other person already as well. It was just a good bit of sort of... That's that
0: surrealism that I'm talking about. Nobody would ever sit on top of somebody that sits on top of somebody. They do here, and it's funny. My best shot's... It's going to be the long shot of the boat concourse. Zeppo is picking up Ruth Hall's, uh, Mary Helton's character uh, there, um, Ruth Hall's uh, handkerchief and saying, Did you drop this? And she says, No. But then she drops her handkerchief and then asks him if he drops it. And he says, Yes. It's a cute interchange, but also I like how they're using this long approach as they're walking towards the camera. A lot of these shots are in tighter corridors and very confined uh, interior rooms. And this one used the space. Uh, more wisely and uh, more ambitiously and showed the opulence of the boat a little bit you see a little bit of that in the staircase chase that you were not a fan of nathan but i i i think the opulence of of an ocean ship liner came through more that shot there and it's not as much of um a glamorous shot as these two that i mentioned but i uh, shout out to the chase they uh move the camera around as the they're searching the deck and they go between these tight narrow the crates and stuff like that we don't get that kind of those kind of action moves and cuts from the camera as much later on as they're moving around. I want to credit that early part there, kind of piggybacking off of what Noah said earlier. There's some good camera work there in that very first scene. Best scene? This one's tough, basically, which is your favorite comedy routine, but best scene, Noah?
2: It is, it is tough to choose, and I could easily um, make an argument for um, almost any scene, I guess, in the movie, but... But by and nose, Groucho's confrontation with Alky Briggs, I think, is pretty damn priceless. It's just wonderful. And uh, one of the things, as with many great comic performances, is it really makes you want to be him. I, I really want to be Groucho when I watch this scene. In the context of the film, Alky Briggs is a scary gangster. He's like twice Groucho's height. Um, he's obviously a live wire, and he, he's eager to kill someone. He's pointing a gun at Groucho and he asks him if he has any last words, you know, before I kill you, do you have any last words? And Groucho, absolute earnestness, he says in this deep voice, he says, yes, I'd like to ask you one question. What is it? Do you think that girls think less of a boy if he lets himself be kissed?" You know, it's just so wonderful. It's a pretty good impression, by the way, No, I mean, who wouldn't want to be that? I, I like your pick there. Nathan, what's your best scene?
1: There is, as you're coming to the end of the first half of this movie, a moment when each of the other three Marx brothers have gone up to the customs officials and failed to get past them with the song. And Harbo comes up and you're thinking, so he's got to try the song, but he's he's mute here. What's he going to do? And he pulls out the <laughs> phonograph on his back and sings around. It is... Such a great moment as Harpo is messing with the customs officials and everything is going crazy and they're just, we're just trying to keep order here and you're just messing up completely and you really feel for them, but you enjoy Harpo's humor. That is my favorite scene.
0: 1931, using a false identity to enter the country, the penalty is a lot less than it is today. I'm pretty sure that you get stuck in a back room with some people like, uh, you know, chewing you out and getting ready to throw you in a federal prison today, but simply they say, uh, what? <laughs> try again, back of the line. Very funny. And then they come through multiple times. That speed of going cycling through the line on that custom scenes.
1: Brilliant. (laughs) And the official never once says, oh, this is a familiar name on this passport. Have I seen this before 10 seconds ago?
0: How did they not get Chevalier to actually appear in there as well and have him go to the back of the line as well? Like, I mean, it's kind of obvious by today's comedy writing standards, but it would be very funny to have him not pass as
1: Chevalier. It would be. Yeah, because, I mean, he wouldn't even have to sing at all. He he could literally just walk up, present his passport, and the guy can say, I've seen, stop, you people keep presenting me the same person. It's obviously not you. Go back there. Yeah, I,
0: I, I wish they had done that. My best scene is going to be the puppet show. Harpo is brilliant in this one. And uh, the face work that he's doing, the timing, I mean... Uh, They're dubbing in more children laughing than are possibly there, but it doesn't matter. It's um, I'd be laughing harder than possibly harder to laugh, too. He's very, very funny. Best wardrobe
2: or makeup moment. Noah. Well, I decided to not take the easy way out and pick something that is always true of the Marx Brothers. So I'm not going to say Groucho's mustache or uh, uh, but a monkey business specific answer, which is in the scene you just mentioned in the, the puppet show scene. The moment when uh, the captain and the first mate are pulling on Harpo's leg through the curtains of the puppet theater and Harpo suddenly runs around and joins them in pulling what, oh, sorry. Oh man, now you're reading my mind. What turns out to be a fake leg. Uh, That's just a, a beautifully executed moment. And, you know, just as we don't really mind how little sense it makes that when they turn out not to be Maurice Chevalier, they're not like thrown in the brig. They're just sent, to the back of the line, like, try again, pal, you know, um, it doesn't quite make sense that we never see that there's a puppeteer. I mean, the puppets who aren't carpo seem to be sentient creatures somehow, because there's no room for a puppeteer in there. But it doesn't tend to occur to us during the scene, or at least not to the point where it interferes with our enjoyment.
0: Well, I mean, Groucho, I don't know if this is just a goof, but like Groucho has a guitar when he's talking to Thelma Todd. And then, oh, he, doesn't, yes. and then he does, and then he doesn't. I don't know if it's just how they cut it, or if it was done on purpose to be funny, or I'm not sure. But I did notice on my second watch, I was like,
1: maybe it was on a side table.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's I. I would have thought that even if they had shot it more than once, that he would just have a guitar in his hands throughout all of that. So I don't know why he doesn't sometimes. But and I might just be stuck on something. But
2: yeah, yeah that's that's the but, Marx Brothers world. You know, it, it's like you don't always know if something is brilliant absurdism or a continuity error.
0: So my my best wardrobe and makeup moments got to be the baggy stuff that Harpo has that you never know what's going to come out of there. And that's that is it across all of them. But, you know, he's able to stash and do so much within that. His, uh his small frame is funny. But to wear such baggy clothes over it is also physically just funny. He walks in the room even before he honks his first honk. He's funny. Change one thing. No, this might be hard for you, given how much you love this stuff. But if you had to change one thing, what would it be?
2: Well, I I guess the ending is my answer to that question. Um, As noted earlier, these films are hard to end because there's no story to resolve. There's no learning to be done. And yet, I still think this is one of the less successful endings. Duck Soup doesn't resolve either, but it does end with a great gag that feels like it kind of puts a button on the evening and sends you home happy. The very ending, the needle in a haystack gag, is just too arbitrary to to make you feel satisfied. Um, and I, I also agree with. I apologize. I don't remember which of the two of you said it, but earlier one of you made the point that after they get off the boat, about two thirds of the way through the movie, it, the the show kind of has run out of steam, even though there's plenty of good stuff um, still to come. Uh, the real gold in this movie is is pretty much the part that takes place on the boat. So I guess that's what I would I would change. I would strengthen um, the the third act.
0: Okay, yeah. And yeah, it was me who was saying like, let's just keep it all yeah. in the boat, and then when you get off, make that a second movie because that sounds like a very good, compelling movie to get still in this gangster world, and it's okay to have the carryover. But um, yeah, that's I, I think I think a big finale is something that this movie is missing. Nathan, what about you? Uh, change one thing?
1: Yeah, hey, I think that second half could actually work pretty well once you're off the boat, but it requires them to commit to something that I thought they were going in the direction of, but they didn't end up, which is... How funny would it be if they just kept on being in their pairs working for separate gangsters and they could even, you know, maybe the gangsters are the ones who have each pair off the boat and are gradually helping them towards each other. And maybe they even cross paths all the time and they say, oh yeah, I'm working for this gangster. And they say, we are too. We must be working for the same guy. And they are acting at cross purposes and they go to the party and they are still acting at cross purposes, but they don't realize it until then you have a final climactic scene where they realize what's going on and that's the punchline. I feel like that equation for how the movie could work as a sort of overall joke that ties everything together, it was set up but never capitalized on, and I think it could work if they did that. I'm going to probably piggyback on both of what you guys said here
0: because I think it would be fun if they ended up working for both gangs and they both Think that both of them work for them, but in reality, both pairs are unawarely or awarely playing both sides. And I think that that would be funny just to have the total mayhem of like, that's my guy, though that's my guy. And then the, in reality, like you said, Noah, I, I loved it when you, you're smash the piano thing is there of like, they're working for both of them and they're just messing with everybody. I think, I think there's some more overlap to be done with these two gangster entities, and that probably would have come through with the second movie. And like I said, if I could have my cake and eat it too just stay on the boat and then the next movie is going to be a gangster movie and I'm going to be very very happy with both of those if you do that because the gangster stuff they didn't mine as much gold there as there was to be had they really could have gone at that hard best quote and and in any movie where Groucho Marx is around this is
2: hard but it's true Noah what what is your best quote of monkey business well it is certainly true that Just about everything Groucho says in this film, and just about everything he says in in many of their films, is, is quotable and is just gold. But my answer, although it is, I wouldn't say this is the best line in the movie. You know, when you've seen the Marx Brothers films over and over, dozens, maybe even hundreds of times, the things that actually make you laugh out loud take on a slightly different quality. And so what I now laugh at are things that maybe didn't strike me as funny before. I didn't realize how funny they were, you know, the first thousand times. And as the punchlines become familiar, the little moments that bubble to the surface are often really subtle. But for some reason, this last time through watching it to, to get ready to talk to you guys, a line that actually made me laugh, a kind of snorting, startled, surprised laugh, is in the barbershop scene. When Harpo and Chico are pretending to be barbers and the uh, member of the ship's crew comes uh, uh, into the shop and he sits down in the chair and and he says, I'm going to go to sleep. Wake me up when you're done giving me a shave. And as he's sitting down in the chair, Chico, who is trying to convince him that he is a professional barber, Chico says, we take care of you, all right. Just the the last thing you want to hear when you sit down (laughs) in a barber's chair. This vaguely menacing we take care of you. I all,
0: also, right? I love how he doesn't look up or get worried. Nope. When he's being shaved and he's like, that side's too short. Yeah. Like, oh, no, that side's too long. The side that was too short's too long. The side that's too long is now too short. Like, I, I just love that this is, the, nobody's taking them not seriously. And like, you know, they're, they're basically getting rid of his whole mustache and you know where it's going, but it's funny how they get there.
1: I'm just jealous of his ability to fall asleep that fast.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he falls asleep immediately and doesn't notice what's going on. And, you know, again, most comedians, if they were stowaways on an ocean liner trying not to get caught and they were posing as barbers in order to not get caught, the last thing they would want is to have their skills tested, to be revealed as not really being barbers and therefore being the stowaway. But as soon as Harpo and Chico decide it's fun to pretend to be barbers, they're all too eager to give a shave and a haircut.
1: Yeah. Now, Nathan, how about you? What's your best quote? You know, I think Harpo has the best line in the movie because it's his harp solo.
2: Ah, see see
0: what you did there. So mine actually is going to go to Chico. He and Big Joe Helton are talking back and forth. And he says, um, it's like, are you tough? All right. All right. How much do you pay? Well, how much? T- how tough are you? Well, if you pay a little bit, we're a little bit tough. If you pay very much, we're very much tough. If you pay too much, we're too much tough. How much do you pay? I pay plenty. Well, then we're plenty tough. <laughs> and then they proceed to go into go ahead, punch me, and show them how tough we <laughs> yes. are. I, like just like I mean, the whole thing is preposterous. And I love that this big time gangster is just like, oh yeah, plenty tough, sure. So I, I like I like the wordplay from Chico there. Noah, tell us one more time where we can find the Marx Brothers Council podcast.
2: You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and you can go to the website Marx Brothers Council Podcast dot com for our episode guide and and links to uh, where to find the show on many platforms.
0: Yeah, and it's not just a movie walkthrough. I mean, these guys. I mean, they may may they may convert you into hardcore March Brothers fans because there's a lot more to talk about than you might be aware of than what we covered here. Yeah,
2: and we've been lucky enough to have some major guests too. We recently had Adam Gopnik on to talk about horse feathers. We had uh, David Zucker and Pat Proft on the show recently. People who worked with um, the Marx brothers in some cases, Steve Stolier, who was Groucho's secretary in the seventies, um, Andy Marx, Groucho's grandson. Uh, so it's a real party.
0: That sounds great. And this is the big moment of the show on a five star scale with half star intervals. Noah, what would you give Monkey Business from nineteen
2: thirty one? I'm giving Monkey Business four stars. Well, oh, that's lower than I was
0: expecting from you.
2: I, I'm my 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 reasoning is that it's a it's approximately my. Fourth favorite Marx Brothers movie. Um, so I'll give five stars to Animal Crackers and Horse Feathers and Monkey Business. Just take a little bit off the score for the lack of musical numbers and Margaret Dumont. Okay. Wow.
0: I I just figured all these Marx Brothers movies had to be you know above. I don't know. It's just,
2: you're t- you're a tough grader. Well, I'm grading on a curve.
0: Okay. Okay. On a Marx Brothers curve. Got it. Um, now Nathan, first time in this is a, this is your first Marx Brothers venture. What do you give Monkey Business? Yeah,
1: first time with a Marx Brothers movie, and I'm right there on four stars. I think that there are places this movie could definitely improve, places that it could have been a little bit more coherent and that sort of thing, but a lot of the jokes, when they land, they really land, and again, I appreciate the musicality that's on display here.
0: Wow, I'm going to be the high man on the totem pole here. I'm going to go with four and a half. I... Don't, I keep it out of that five zone, but the impact is huge. And to me, uh, some of the things that I might get bogged down in with, with some of the other March Brothers efforts, um, like music numbers that don't necessarily serve the plot or aren't the brothers. Everything's, I love the fast pace. The frenetic pace of this is just orchestrated chaos in the most wonderful way. I think the best comedy movies keep you laughing. By writing stuff in, there can be stuff in the background, and this movie just doesn't let up, and that's what I want from a comedy movie. I really don't want you to let up, and they don't ever stay Welcome, and it's watching three geniuses and their brother, <laughs> and their dad in the background just operate and um just have a great time doing it. You know, this is Mike. I said this is my second favorite Marx Brothers movies of the ones that I've watched. Nathan, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it, Russell. All right. We need to honor Jackie Chan here because we have not done a full-blown Jackie Chan movie on our podcast. So we're going to do that. Option one, police story from 1985. A virtuous Hong Kong police officer must clear his good name when the drug lord he is after frames him for murder of a dirty cop. Option two, the legend of drunken master from 94. A young martial artist is caught between respecting his pacifist father's wishes or stopping a group of disrespectful foreigners from stealing precious artifacts. And option three, operation condor from 91 jackie is hired to help the un find nazi gold hidden in the sahara and he is accompanied from spain by two later three cute women as there are others wanting the gold lots of kung fu fighting and comedy follows
1: well russell i think we're gonna go with option two 1994's legend of drunken master
0: that's a fine choice to look forward to getting into that one And Noah, thank you so much. You were a very knowledgeable, fun, and enjoyable guest to have on. We really loved having you on, man.
2: Well, thanks very much, guys. I really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I appreciate the invitation.
0: And to all the Lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we thank you. We want you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us there. And give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro, email the show if you want at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com, all one word. And providing and producing this podcast is fun, but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Roundtable. Any contributions you make will go to making the show better and benefiting you, the listeners. As always,
1: thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Nathan. You see, most blokes, you know, will be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, you're on 10 on your guitar, where can you go from there? What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11.